0: you brought your copy of God's Word with you, open to Matthew. This morning we're going to be beginning in chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, which is going to be the last chapter in the section of chapters that I refer to as the the program and pronouncement of Christ. We're going to see here that Jesus backtracks well Matthew in his writing of the life of Christ backtracks and has, uh, brings up John the Baptist again we saw John the Baptist uh, earlier in Matthew in chapter 4 and um, as a forerunner and here we're going to see Matthew backtracking onto John the Baptist and it seems like he's going to touch on an issue in John's life that uh, there's a lot of room for application in our lives as well um, the song we just finished singing began by saying when we fail, fear our faith may fail Christ will hold me fast. <clears throat> We're going to find John in prison here and he's going to be sending his disciples back to Christ saying are you, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? There comes time, a time in our lives when that proverbial rubber hits the road of uh, Jesus being your best friend doesn't negate the fact that you're gonna face different persecutions, temptations, trials, suffering of different sorts, losses of different sorts. The plans that you had um, didn't quite turn the way that you perhaps thought that they would turn Perhaps somewhere along the way, there was the loss of loved ones that preceded you that weren't supposed to precede you. There was illnesses that afflicted loved ones in ways that you would have never imagined. And in those moments, we perhaps have opportunity to question, to question the Lord. It's a testing of our faith. Of sorts, And John, it seems, is in a moment like that. And we're just going to look at the first six verses here. <clears throat> and I think we're going to tease out some things that really will um, help each of us. Because I can promise you, if you haven't faced those circumstances in life yet, you will. Uh, we have enough going on in our culture. We could, I think, all of us could probably think of a situation right now where you can think of others who may be, finding themselves thinking, you know, where is God in the midst of this? How could there be a a good God in heaven who's allowing this kind of chaos to reign over the earth? I think it was the philosopher Nietzsche who said, if that's the way your God is, your God is my devil. And such is the problem of unbelief. An unbelieving world looks at a world and they see chaos, God looks at all things simultaneously at the same time. He's the eternal present. He sees the beginning from the end and is able to therefore say he can cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because he sees everything from beginning to end all at the same time. We, on the other hand, are sojourners, amen? We can't do that. And when you find yourself in that gap, in that place like John the Baptist is going to find himself here, or perhaps like others have found themselves in very deep moments and darkness moments of life, we're going to see John do something that we need to do as well. Now, in setting this up, I was intrigued a little bit with the the idea that this chapter 11 is the final chapter of this, the program of Christ, the pronouncement of Christ, that kind of a thing. And so... um, I haven't really been focusing much on some of the larger blocks within the book of Matthew as we've been walking through, so I may do that a little bit more from time to time. But this morning, just kind of setting briefly a quick context for this, and trust me, I have plenty of time because I originally intended to preach the first 15 verses, and whenever I practiced it and it was like an hour and 25 minutes long, I realized that that's not going to work. So you can thank me later. And so I decided I probably better just trim this thing back to the smaller pericope, the unit of thought, which would be chapters 1 through 6 instead of 15. So that's what we're going to hit this morning. But we see in this broader section from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 11 this idea of of Matthew presenting the program of the gospel of the kingdom and the pronouncement of Christ and the need to be those who are proclaimers of this good news of Jesus who is the Christ. There in chapter 4... We see it begins with Jesus spending 40 days and nights in the wilderness to be tempted, and it shows him to be blameless over all temptation and sin. We know we have a great high priest to whom we can go. He's been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. So when you feel, fear your faith may fail, who can hold you fast? Christ. Christ. We see this early, early in chapter 4. Jesus then begins a public preaching ministry, concerning his kingdom and thus preaches a gospel about the kingdom. Jesus calls his first disciples and he makes a promise to them there that we're still living out today, which is, still, which is that which is true for us. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, we are making a purposed decision to be becoming fishers of men. That's just part of the discipleship arrangement. Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. You get to Matthew chapter 28. He gives a great commission. Go into all the nations and make disciples. And in order to make disciples, you have to preach the gospel. You have to fish for men. We see this early in chapter 4 about this program and the pronouncement of Christ. We see that there is where Jesus ministers throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching to any who would listen. And in that preaching to any who would listen. We see the first major discourse in this larger section from 4 through 11. We refer to that as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's that sermon where Jesus preaches. Um, That would be an example of the kind of public preaching that Jesus would be doing throughout the course of his ministry. So if we think to ourselves, well, what was Jesus talking or teaching whenever it says he's preaching and teaching or whenever he sends his disciples out and he says, go out and preach, the gospel of the kingdom. I think the Sermon on the Mount is just a great example, Not probably not verbatim, didn't just repeat the same words over and over each and every time, but those concepts, the principles of the Beatitudes, and then how we live in light of the, the life change that comes as a result of genuine repentance and faith in Christ, I think that that would be the warp and wolf of the programmed preaching of the gospel of the kingdoms at hand and thus the pronouncement of Christ. We see that in chapters five through seven. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see the confirmation of this preaching ministry. Jesus came with signs, wonders, and miracles demonstrating his messianic power over disease, demons, nature, blindness, etc. So Jesus just shows himself to be the the one who has come in fulfillment of what Isaiah 35, Isaiah 60-65, through and other prophetic passages have talked about, that the Messiah would come with signs and wonders and miracles, and Jesus did exactly that and then in chapter 10 which is the second major discourse in this section we just see a section there where Jesus is appointing the 12 for their public ministries um, Matthew particularly narrows in on the 12 Luke gets a little bit broader but Matthew specifically narrows in on the 12 says that he appoints the 12 for their preaching and teaching ministry to go into the cities and the villages of the Galilean region with the same preaching and teaching ministry that he had. And then he also gave them the same authority to do the same signs and wonders and miracles that he was doing to validate their message as well. It's in chapter 10 that we find some of the, what we call the hard teachings of Jesus, where he says things like, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And that in the preaching of the gospel, you're gonna find that there's even even a division amongst families. And though it's contextually significantly different than what they would've faced, these disciples would've faced, they would've faced very significant um, family strife and the division of families and fathers and mothers against children and children against fathers and mothers even unto death. And we see that happening even, even around the world today. But even here in the good old United States of America, Listen, if, you're, if, you, if you decide that you're going to really truly live for the gospel and, and live with a biblical worldview amongst your family, I can, unless your family are all saintly, you're going to find some resistance. So let your light shine because Jesus made promises. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven. But he also left warnings. If you deny me before men, if you stay silent... When you're in the gap, it's time to stand and let your light shine, and you remain silent, and you perpetually do that. Not the one-offs, but that becomes a perpetual way of life, that secret Christian motif. If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven. I mean, Jesus keeps it very real with his disciples as he's sending them out, and he's letting them know that you're, on, you're being commissioned and you're being sent on a mission, and it's very particular. And we as his disciples have such same promises even today. And they were, oh, and some of their promises were the promise of the prospect of persecution. That's always a good one, right? And now, in chapter 11, we're going to see three things primarily, uh, largely in the, 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 this chapter. First, we're going to see issues concerning John the Baptist. We're going to look at that over the next couple of weeks and learn from some of these uh, important things that touch John's life and how he responds to them. Secondly, we're going to. Um, See what cities uh, and the people that live in those cities should expect. Uh, people who, who reject, those who aren't receptive, but who are rejecting of the message, those, the people that are living in those cities. Um, when you fail to repent, Jesus is going to talk about the condemnation that will come and the judgment that will come for unbelief. And then thirdly, Jesus, his genuine and heartfelt call for all those who are looking uh, for rest for their souls. Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. It's a simple call to trust and obey. To come to Christ. To find your soul rest in him. That's what we're going to see in chapter 11. And that kind of concludes that broader section of the, com- of the commissioning <coughs> of uh, Christ. The program of Christ and the pronouncement of Christ. So this morning... We're going to be looking at verses one through six, as I made mention, and I've simply titled this "Concerning John the Baptist" because it concerns issues related to John. And in these six verses, we're going to learn very uh, some very valuable lessons. It seems, from my perspective, in the short 55 years of life that I've lived, I have found myself in this um, in this place before, and the the the, the, the wisdom that we see John. Demonstrating here, I think, is very important for us as well. So look at verse 1. Here in verse 1 is kind of what I'm thinking of and viewing as a transitional verse between chapters 10 and chapter 11. So notice how Matthew does this. He says, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, all of chapter 10 and things that they could expect and what they should be expecting and to do, He departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So uh, it seems just simply having finished his instruction with the twelve, Jesus himself, it says here specifically, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. The there uh, would seem to be the place where Jesus had originally summoned his twelve, and gave these instructions to the twelve, he's been in that place, he's finished his dialogue, so it would almost seem that the the instruction that he gave to his twelve probably happened all on the same day, and then he's, he he sends them out, now that seems to be more implicit, because that's what he said he was going to do, but it says very explicitly here, that after the the uh, instructions he gave them that he himself departed. So they all depart from that place where he instructed them to go and do the work of ministry, what they were supposed to do, and Jesus himself goes about and continues teaching and preaching in their cities. And I guess one of the unique things about this is that we see here that there was perhaps, and this would be a good place to, to say maybe more than just perhaps, that Jesus himself continued to go through the Galilean region alone, this time without the inner 12, probably with a lot of people obviously still following him, those who would still be referring to him as their disciples, but not particularly these 12 who would be the later apostles. And so Jesus is continuing alone now his teaching, his preaching ministry in the towns and villages and the cities of Galilee, which lets us know that for some particular time, we don't know exactly he was doing this without his disciples, his training had been completed. Matthew gives us no sense of time as to how long this continued on like this, so we don't have any, from my perspective currently, any reference point in terms of how long perhaps this kind of ministry went on. But then in verse 2, we see that Matthew is compelled to bring, um, to bear a rather significant issue dealing with John the Baptist. And as we're going to see here, John the Baptist has been in prison for some time. And he's been given reports, it would seem, from disciples, words that were coming back to John from outside the prison. So John is able to kind of keep tabs of the ministry of Jesus and the proclamation and the spreading of this message of the kingdom of heaven that's at hand, the need for repentance and of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, which was the exact same message that John himself was preaching. But it seems here we're going to see that John is going to send his disciples specifically and directly to Jesus with the purpose of asking clarifying questions. Which is always a good thing to do, right? If you have an issue, if you've got confusion, if you're, if you're sensing any doubt whatsoever, the best thing is to, go, to do is to go back directly to the source of information, directly to the source of knowledge, and ask clarifying questions. Rather than mull it over in our own ignorance, mull it over in our own feeble feelings, which can oftentimes be clouded by doubt or confusion or pessimism or whatever it may be, and when we mull those things over independently or we pull together other ignorance from friends who don't really go back to the main source, we can pull our ignorance and find ourselves way off field, uh, way off course in terms of living the kind of life that God has called us to live. Ever been there? Told you there was some application in here, and I only had one honest man up here. Thank you, Royce. I had mine too. Now, all of us, I think, every single one of us have found ourselves in this place, and so this is why I think what we're going to learn here from John is a very crucial piece of information. Notice chapter 2, 11-2. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, verse 3, and said to him, Here's his clarifying question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? So John was imprisoned for denouncing King Herod's adulterous marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias, and John did that in a very public way. He wasn't gun-shy. He he says, we're going to see there in chapter 14, when we get to Matthew 14, that that John the Baptist was very um, direct in his uh, calling Herod out for his sin. Um, And what we know about John is that prior to his public engagement uh, with Herod that led to his imprisonment, that John had already been out and experienced a pretty significant public ministry himself about the coming of Messiah that he, he... i think john had a very intuitive sense a very direct knowledge base that he was the forerunner for the christ john had already baptized jesus in the jordan river Uh, that was jesus said in keeping with all righteousness Um, john was the one who recognized that christ as the coming one um, needed to increase and that his ministry needed to be that which was on the the decrease that Attention needed to be pointed to Jesus and not to himself. So it's fair to say that John rightly understood who he was in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, as Matthew in his gospel makes reference to. And this is what, uh, in particular, what the angel of the Lord... And, uh, and think about this. So when you're, when you're in a family and things happen... Family talks about family, right? Family shares family life around the kitchen table, whether it's whatever meal it is. Family shares family life. Anybody. Experience that with your family. You kind of know each other's business, and especially parents like to talk about things that happen to their kids when they're little. As the kids get older, they tell stories about things that their kids did when they were... So this is, this is something that happened to Zacharias that I have a feeling probably was shared around the family table on more than one occasion, and so I think John probably had had some previous knowledge of some of these facts. An angel of the Lord shows up to Zacharias, and it says there in Luke one seventeen. Tells Zacharias, and he, this, the son that's in your, in your wife's Elizabeth's womb, he will go before him, that's the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So I think Zacharias probably said to little Johnny at some point around the dinner table, hey, you're not going to believe what happened to me when you're in your mother's womb. And that's why you're a Nazarite, and took a there's a Nazarite vow going on here. And that's why you're still doing that to this day. I think John had a fair understanding of who he was. John also, then, as a part of his family, had a very keen understanding of who his cousin was. However, just like the rest of us, when faced with difficult circumstances like John's. Even the best of us can find ourselves facing doubt over what we were once so certain of. Some suggest that John was perhaps in prison for up to 18 months prior to his very timely death at the request of Herodias. And during those 18 months, I'm thinking that John might have had a hard time seeing his lengthy imprisonment Um, the suffocating confinement that he was living in and surely the um, suffocating loneliness and probable torment that he faced, he probably had a hard time seeing that as a reward of his faithfulness and service to God for being who he was and faithfully executing the plan that God had given to his parents. You see, when we serve God for a really long time and then things don't go quite the way we perceive they should, it's oftentimes difficult to to fight away the temptation toward self-pity and to wonder about the ways of God in our lives as compared to the ways of God in other people's lives that seem to be going just fine. Thank you very much. Man, when I look at brother so-and-so's life or that family's life, they didn't have to endure such and such kind of hardship. Why me? I think we're all, no matter the best of us, find ourselves prone to perhaps sensing and feeling that, per, that God might not be treating us the way we might have thought that he was going to treat us because we had been so faithful in being his servants for a really, really long time. And especially when that kind of difficulty involves perhaps persecution, suffering, loss of any kind, whatever degree of loss that might be it gets really difficult doesn't it And i have a feeling that most of us have probably been there at some point in time or another now maybe you're young enough to where that hasn't maybe touched your life yet but i can promise you just ask some of the older folks in here and i guarantee they will assure you that it most certainly will it's just part of our sojourning It almost sometimes seems, when I look back on my life and the course of my life, when I got here in 2007 in Tulsa, I had the worst decade of my entire life. From 2007 to 2017 was probably the worst decade I've ever experienced in my entire life, all because I signed up to be a pastor and a proclaimer of the heralding heralding of the truth of Jesus Christ. And I can promise you that there are many nights I was talking to God, very similarly like John was here. I know what I know, but things just don't seem to be going the way I thought they were going to go, God. I know what I know, but I thought things would be different this time, God. I kind of had a, another little taste of that previous, Lord, and you kind re, of redeemed me from that bad situation, and I thought I was going from bad to good. I went from the frying pan to the fire, God. Why? and I bargained with God probably for a period of years I said Lord all you have to do I'm already convinced Lord I'm already convinced the, the empirical data that I see I'm already convinced that I'm obviously the worst pastor and preacher that's ever existed on planet earth I see all of that around me I see, I see everybody fleeing and leaving and, and just death and destruction that's so, Lord, all you have to do, God, to convince me that, that when I thought I heard you calling me to do this, all you have to do, Lord, to convince me of that is send one person to me. Just send one random person to me that will offer me a job that would enable me to provide for my family. I'm going to take that as a word from you. I prayed that prayer on so many occasions. And I thank God that the heaven stayed silent. And he let me just continue to wrestle with his sovereignty in my life so that I could grow, that through that, too many things he did bring up, but through all of that stuff, he could refine me as if in a refiner's fire. That's what we signed up for, church. My experience is going to be different than yours. It's going to be different than John's, but that's what we signed up for. And God allows our lives to be funneled through like this refiner's fire of sorts in different ways, in different contexts, for the purpose of getting you convinced that Jesus is the solid foundation upon which your feet must stand. See the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. When you build your life, your house, upon the rock, when the waves come crashing in and it all passes over, guess who will be left standing? You will. We will. God's people. Doesn't oftentimes feel like it in the fire. And John, it seems, is kind of feeling the heat. I don't know what it would be like to be in prison for 18 months. I don't know. That wasn't my experience. But I can understand why he would gather up his disciples and send them to Jesus with the clarifying question, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? We know that John had been made aware while in prison. We notice right here that John had been made aware of. He heard the works Christ. so John was aware of what Jesus had been doing um, we saw that in chapters 8 and 9 we saw the preaching, teaching ministry of Jesus followed with signs, wonders, miracles a raising the dead, the cleansing of the leopard the, uh, the, the, the variety of miraculous power that we saw demonstrated through Jesus John had heard of all of that he knew what he was doing And while all of that was great what from your perspective was the nation of Israel including John the Baptist in particular looking for Messiah to do whenever Messiah showed up hooves on the ground? Well it was obviously signs, wonders and miracles because they saw that in the Old Testament they saw that he would be doing such things. But what in particular were they anticipating and hoping on greatly? Well they were looking for a conquering king. They were looking for A Messiah, Davidic conquering king who was going to come and subdue all their enemies and usher in a permanent time of peace to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that comes from a variety of different Old Testament passages. You can just go and read the end of Isaiah, chapters 60 through 66. You see in there a a variety of ways just this time of national revival that is spoken of that will be ushered in by David's greater son. And they were wrongly anticipating that that was going to happen during his first advent they didn't realize that there was going to be a first coming and then a second coming we see at the very end of Isaiah 66:23, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from sabbath to sabbath all mankind will come and worship before me says Yahweh so John the Baptist, his difficulty and the other Jews of his day, a difficulty is that though they're looking at Jesus and they're seeing the things that he's doing with re- relative to signs, wonders, and miracles, they probably are thinking, well, where are the steps toward that future glorious kingdom? Because we preach the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Where are the steps that are going to lead to that future glorious kingdom? So w- another unique thing about us as people is when we have unmet expectations. So sometimes we have expectations that um that because in John's case they they read in the prophets that this is what's going to happen as a result of Messiah coming and so they have certain expectations and then when the reality shows up and those expectations aren't met unmet expectations can oftentimes lead to disappointment heartache frustration with one another and oftentimes with god so it seems that after these 18 months of john probably feeling as if he's somewhat rotting away there in his his uh, prison cell sends to jesus asking this very direct clarifying question are you the one are you the one or shall we be looking for someone else are you the one that was to come now i heard all the stories around the family table I knew what was said. I knew what the angel said to my father. John must be thinking some of these things. But think about what John is saying. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else? I started looking at this in a little bit of a different way. And it seems to me that John really isn't looking for new information about Jesus at all, is he? John really isn't looking for new information about Jesus he's looking for confirming information he's looking to confirm what he already knew to be true about Jesus And I think that in that context and in that approach that John takes that there is a lot of application for each of us here as well When John's faith grew weak for whatever reason where did he go He went back to Jesus looking for answers to his questions. So many of us get spiritually weak for whatever reason. Instead of going back to Jesus looking for answers and asking clarifying questions, we instead go anywhere but to Jesus looking for those answers that we find ultimately never really satisfied that only lead us further away from God to begin with. Let's not be like that, church. Let's learn from John. No matter how difficult your circumstances may be or will someday be, always, always, no matter how discouraged you are or how weak your faith may feel, go back to Jesus with clarifying questions and hold on tight because The word of God has all the answers. Amen? And when you rely on God's word for those answers and persevere in the word of God with the answers that you get when you go back to them yet again and again and again, come what may, you'll find that you can make it through anything and everything. And in whatever that valley of the shadow of death may be that you find yourself walking through you will find that he is there. John having already put his faith in Jesus as being the one who is to come though somewhat perplexed is yet again seeking a word from Jesus that will comfort him in his time of extended confinement. Isn't that great news, church? This is why you've probably heard people say in a variety of different ways, you need to read the Bible on a daily basis. Because you know what reading the Bible is? It's going back to Jesus. It's going back to Jesus and you're looking for answers for life. It's going back to the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, the living Word of God, and the living Word and the written Word, and you're you're giving rest for your soul. You get out in the world, you get a little confused, you start thinking that maybe your image is to be found in something else, you go back to Jesus, you go back to the Word of God, and you get re-rooted in who you are in relationship with Him and how you need to view yourself in relationship with Him and not them. John, difficult spot. Go to Jesus, and let's just confirm what we already know to be true. And then Jesus sends word back confirming what he already knew to be true, and that was rest for John's soul. Notice how Jesus does this. Look at verse 4 through 6. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Verse 6, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So after John's disciples make their way to Jesus and ask these clarifying questions that John sent them out with, Jesus gave them an answer. And if we're honest about this, we see the information that Jesus sends back, John already had available to him, right? We saw that there in verse 2. Now when John in prison heard, what? Of the works of Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus sends back word by means of his disciples back to John. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Verse 2, John had already heard the works of Christ. Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone? Go tell John what you hear. But now Jesus is sending them back as eyewitnesses and see. These disciples of John are coming back and, and they're reporting that, yes, everything that you've heard about Jesus is true. All the things that you've heard that Jesus has been doing in his ministry is true, and now we, with our own eyes, we've seen this. And I think it's in Mark's account, it seems that when John sent these disciples to Jesus, that Jesus performs a plethora of miraculous signs, wonders, and miracles almost to send these disciples of John back to John with a multitude of examples of things that they heard and saw themselves. So we see Jesus sending these men back, not telling John anything new at all, but now they're coming back perhaps if they hadn't already been eyewitnesses to what Jesus was doing. They certainly were now. So John on this occasion perhaps was given firsthand eyewitness encounters of what Jesus was indeed doing, again for John, confirming that everything he knew to be true and right about Jesus was true and right about Jesus, which, as we see in verse 5, were these miraculous signs that he was doing. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Isn't that a great list? Right alongside all of these um, supernatural realities the preaching of the gospel is elevated to things that are signs that would point to the, to the veracity and the reality of Jesus Christ and who are these poor? well in one sense it's the spiritually poor so it would be every single person remember when Jesus looked out on the crowd when he was in the training of his twelve he looked out and he saw the multitudes and he said he had compassion for these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd The poor would be anyone who was like a sheep without a shepherd. This isn't referencing how much money they had available to them or the size of the cottage that they lived in or the number of camels that they had to ride around on. This had everything to do with the poorness of their soul. And so he's letting John know, yes, hey, John, remember... Remember when you were out in the wilderness preaching of a repentance for sin because the kingdom of heaven was at hand? Remember when those scribes and the Pharisees came to you and you said to them, hey, it's, it's nice that you showed up, but don't forget, guys, you better bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, that same thing is happening, John. Same, same. So it would seem from how Jesus has responded here by just reciting the very same thing it would seem abundantly clear that this isn't new information at all that John was in need of perhaps something different than that he was in need of some I may just call it fresh information old news retold as if for the first time kind of information for the purpose of refreshing John's faith it's the idea of fresh wind fresh fire or you might think of daily manna and it's for this reason that we again I repeat this must keep coming back to Jesus as John did especially when we find ourselves weak and weary of soul because when we come back to Christ we find that he's never changed same same what did i already know about Jesus i go and i i, I go I find myself in a circumstance and i'm finally, i'm I'm really doubtful i'm perplexed i'm kind of confused so i go back to Jesus and what i discover same Same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Same. Nothing changed. The only thing that changed was perhaps my perspective. Perhaps the distance that I allowed to grow between my relationship with the world and or with Christ. Tell John this, what you see and hear. Nothing new. Jesus Still doing the same things the same way. But John's disciples are bringing back to him a fresh word of what he's doing now. So let me ask you what's Jesus doing now in your life? What's the now? What's the fresh? What's keeping the the wind underneath your wings to soar as one of his? So when we get out into the world, we don't look more like the world, but we look like Christ's ambassadors in the world. Feeling a little bit perplexed? Finding reasons for doubt? And listen, those reasons for doubt, let me tell you, that they're not on you. This isn't a negative commentary against John. They're not. On, did, have, you, have you read Ephesians 6? The devil has schemes that are there designed to work against you, and he's got flaming darts of lies that he sends against you. And so, this is why you keep going back to Jesus—fresh wind, of new manna, a daily word—so that shield of faith can stay solid, it can stay strong, and we can go out into the world and we can be ambassadors for Jesus the way we're supposed to be. Are you feeling a little bit dull in your walk with Christ? Go back to Jesus. You know what you're going to find. same the same great savior you're gonna find the same amazing grace the same amazing gospel didn't change you already knew it before and you're going to know it again but perhaps you just need a fresh word from the Lord by going into his word I remember the prof Howard Hendricks he said when you go to study the Bible Especially you seminary guys, and this is true for everybody. You got to go to the Word of God. You got to open it and you got to read it and see it as if for the first time. Fresh manna. You need it daily. And I've shared this with you before, so I'm just going to repeat it again because one of the habits that I got into, especially when I was at Denton Bible Church and going through seminary, was. I had Bibles, and I had a plethora of notes, man. I had outlines. I had sermon outlines. I had profs' notes. I had so much stuff jammed on the pages of my Bible. And I kind of felt good about it, especially when somebody looked over and said, like, whoa, check out that man's Bible. You see a Bible torn apart, life put together, all that kind of, you know, right? Those cliches. <laughs> um, but one of the things I discovered in the process of doing that is every time I'd open the Word, wanting to get a fresh manna, I kept finding the old manna that I wrote in the margins. And then I would eat off of that. And I would read my notes and not the word. I'd read, I'd say, look at the word, and immediately I'd go over and I'd start delving into my notes. Now, maybe maybe you're more disciplined than I am, but that was my my weakness. I'm like, hey, I already discovered truth in here once. I wrote it down. I'm going to go back. It's truth, same. Same, same truth. So when I had the prof... I stopped doing that in my Bibles, and so now I still have some of those old Bibles stacked away, but now I just have fresh pages because when I come to the Word, I want a fresh wind. I want to come in here and I want to say, Holy Spirit, illumine, illumine my eyes to see truths that I've never seen before when I come to your Word. I want a fresh Word, a fresh manna from the Lord Jesus today. John needed fresh. We need fresh as well. Amen. And then in verse 6, notice he said, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Isn't that good? This word offense. Our English word is scandalize. Scandalizo, scandalize. To cause someone to experience anger and or shock because of what has been said or done. When you get something that's shocking, it's kind of scandalous, are you not somewhat offended? Of course you are. You're human, right? Jesus said, And blessed is he who is not scandalized at me, who doesn't take offense at me. He's letting John know this. And it would seem, of course, the only thing that they would take offense at wasn't what Jesus was doing. Everybody loved the miracle maker and wanted the healing from his hand. It would seem the only thing that they perhaps might be taking offense at would be his gospel, confronting people with their sin, calling them to account for their sin and, and, and saying that Jesus demands repentance because of your sin and faith in him. So it seems that the, that which would be scandalous would be the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon in his commentary said, that man is blessed who so believes, that his faith cannot be stumbled. A hint for John. John had not fallen, but very possibly he had stumbled. He had been a little put to it through a sense of, non-deliverance in time of need and therefore he had asked the question blessed is he who can be left in prison can be silenced in his testimony can seem to be deserted for his Lord and yet can shut out every doubt that was John the Baptist and how he did this he gathered his disciples and he said hey go get a fresh word from Jesus are you the one yes I'm the one Same, same. And it seems that John's spirit revived and thankfully uh, as we get to chapter 14 we're going to see that for his faithful service uh, he met his timely death at the hands of Herod. And this is why I believe that we like John must be those when seeking for answers to some of the things that perhaps might be trying to scandalize our faith, we must do what John did, church, go to Jesus. Amen? Have you been to Jesus today? Are you going to go see Jesus again tomorrow? He's a gracious Savior, a loving Lord, and he's called us his friends. He's been tempted and tried in every way that we are yet without sin. Go to Jesus. You'll find that he's been there and that you can stand in his grace.